0: Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I have, my name's Alan, if I haven't met you. I work on Bishop Waldo's staff in Columbia, and so I'm honored to be with you all this week. So one thing you don't know about me is I have two little boys, a 10 and an eight-year-old boy, boys. The 10-year-old's a competitive swimmer, and so much of this sermon was written yesterday in between events at a swim meet. (laughs) See there's a lot of swim parents here, right? You spend like six hours and your kid's in the water for like two minutes and 30 seconds really efficient use of time. But because of that, time is very important, right? Because, like, my son's not necessarily competing against other kids, because for him, at his age at least, coming in, you know, tenth or fifth, that's important. But what matters is the time. If you're a swim parent, you know there's time standards. And so we tell him, timing is everything. And that's a saying we use, right? for a lot of things, timing is everything. Like a t- Timing makes a joke funny and not offensive, right? Timing makes a, a marriage proposal lovely and not creepy. <laughs> right? Timing is important. And so I, was, I thought about that as I was reading through this gospel passage today, because here there's a, a problem with the timing. We're assuming the proposal went okay, because there's actually a wedding. But timing does come into play. This is the third day of this wedding feast. So that's a timing issue right there. That's a heck of a party. (laughs) But even more so, the wine ran out. Now this isn't just like a social problem, like, oh no, what are my guests going to drink? Because in that culture, these prolonged feasts, they were were a celebration of more than the bride and the groom. They were a celebration of the community, a celebration of love, a celebration of God's provision, of God's grace. And and this, this should be familiar to us that the wine in particular was a sign of the harvest, a sign of God's provision. Right? We have our own feast in which wine plays a particular role. But for this wedding and this party, the wine had run out. So Jesus and his disciples are there, Mary's there, and, and Mary gets this whole thing started. Maybe she knew the family. And so she was trying to help out her friend. Or maybe she just knew what this meant for the couple and for the community. She just knows what's going to happen when the wine runs out. So she goes to Jesus and is like, Jesus, I know you can do something. They're out of wine. You have to act. Jesus thinks the timing's all wrong. Or at least that's the hint we get from the text. Because he pushes back against his mother. That's, that's unusual in the scripture. You know, Jesus saves this kind of confrontation for religious leaders, scribes, people like that. Not mama. He's like, woman? That's oddly, like if I went to my mom and said woman, like I would still get spanked. So confront says, woman. What is that to you? What is that to me? Mind your own business. But then he says, my time has not yet come. And so we're back to timing. But the trick is here, Mary might have known how to tell time better than we think. Maybe Mary helps Jesus learn to tell time in this instance. Because she doesn't argue. She doesn't spank him for talking back, all she does is she turns around, finds the stewards, and says, do whatever he tells you. That presumes that she knows he's actually going to do something. It might be because she's a mom, right? And moms know that their kids are going to argue and protest, but, but they're going to come around, usually. But it might be that, that Mary had a sense of God's timing All throughout John, we get this dual sense of time. There's earthly time. John gives us, you know, dates and hours and things like that. He says this is the third day. And so John's careful in his gospel to track this earthly time. We use watches and calendars to measure that time, the everyday moments of our lives, the day by day. But John's also interested throughout his gospel in this, this kairos time, this God time, this heavenly time. And that's the sense we get when Jesus says, my hour, my time has not yet come. He's not looking at a watch waiting for 6.30. He's waiting for God to act. That's kairos time. In the midst of our minutes and our hours, in our days and our weeks, this kairos time, this heavenly time, this God time breaks through. And the seconds fade away, and all that we're left with is possibility and grace and hope. And so maybe that's the kind of time Mary's interested in. Maybe that's the kind of time that she helps Jesus tell. So you know the rest of the story, right? We just read it. Jesus does, indeed, tell those stewards, take those water buckets and fill them up. And then take them to the chief steward, and he scoops out some. And here, timing gets turned on its head again. Because as the text tells us, usually the host would wait and serve the good wine first, get the partygoers liquored up, and then bring out the other wine, the cheaper wine. The text says drunk. But here that timing slipped on its head. Jesus saves the best for last. Because the earthly time, the way things have always happened, what these folks are expecting isn't what happens. So there's two real things that, that I've picked up from this text. One is the timing, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then the other Is the people involved. The text doesn't tell us Jesus does anything except tells other people to do stuff. So the actors in this story are the stewards, the head steward, and the guests. They're the people that do things. Jesus says, do this, fill it with water, but we don't see Jesus do anything that would himself physically make this happen. It's the stewards that do the work. And we don't even know their names. So I thought about these two, these two ideas from this text, the idea of God's time and of God's people doing the work. And then I remembered this as the weekend, tomorrow's the day that we as a country set aside to remember Dr. Martin Luther King. And I think his story illustrates this. Because there wasn't like a high school Martin who was sitting there with his guidance counselor filling out, you know, the the interest thing where you check off, I'm interested. He didn't say leader of a movement, right? He wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to be a preacher. He maybe wanted to teach in seminary. It was other people who called on him to become who he became. In particular, there seems to be one week that transformed his life. Rosa Parks sat in the wrong seat on a bus, led to this whole fiasco. So leaders in Montgomery got together, and they were like, we have to to form an organization. We need to find a leader. And Dr. King was there because he was interested in the cause, But he didn't raise his hand and say, I want to do it. I'm made for this. It was other folks who saw in him some gifts, who saw in him some things that would help this movement get started. And he was unanimously selected to lead that organization. A Couple minutes later, he stands up in front of 4,000 people, and he begins to lay out his dream. We get the first inklings of what would become of the Dr. King that we know. And it happened because other people saw something in him. Other people called out those gifts and put him in a position to do what he did. So it wasn't his timing. It's not like he was sitting around waiting, this is the day I'm going to do it. It wasn't even him thinking, I'm the person that can do it it was god's time and it was god's people recognizing those gifts and so as i thought about that it's like what does that mean for us what does it mean for us to look at the ordinary moments and times in our life the conversations we have in the checkout line, the people we stand next to when we're waiting for a cup of coffee, the people we live next door to. If we think about God's time and God's people, how does that transform our everyday, ordinary, minute-by-minute lives? Because for God, there are no everyday Ordinary minute-by-minute times. And for God, there are no ordinary, everyday people. We get in Paul's letter today part, part of a list of the gifts of the Spirit. Paul has other writings where he expands it. But Paul is clear. The Spirit has given some people this and some people this and some people this. Paul never says those people don't get anything. No one gets out of here without a job. No one gets out of here without a gift. No one gets out of here without a purpose. Now, I'm going to venture to say not many of us here will become a household name and have a national holiday. Maybe some of us might. But all of us know someone who has changed our lives. And none of the rest of us have any idea who that is. If I say the name Peter Cowser, none of you know who that is. If it is, I'll be surprised. But that man changed my life. And if I talk to each one of you, you can point to a person that's probably changed your life, that's helped you when you've needed it, that's said something to you, or that you've seen transform a neighborhood or a school or a workplace. And we don't know their names. Just like we don't know the names of those stewards who all they did was listen to Jesus. All they did was do what Jesus told them to do. And they became the means by which a miracle happened. They became the means by which the wine overflowed. They became the means by which God's grace was made present to those people that day. And that's all we're asked to do. It seems simple, right? Just do what Jesus tells you to do. So that's my challenge to you this week, is to pray, discern, read the scriptures, look within yourself look at your community and figure out what is it that i am called to do ask yourself what unique gifts have god given me what spiritual gifts has god placed in you don't worry about the gifts that your neighbor has right now those will become evident to them and to all of us. But what has God put you here to do? So one of the benefits of of working on a bishop's staff is that I'm in a different church every week. Well, it's a benefit and a curse. But I don't know any of y'all, right? I don't know who here can sing. I don't know who here can teach. I don't know who here can play the guitar. I don't know any of that. But I know each of you can do something. And I'm new to South Carolina, and so I don't even know the particular gifts of our parishes. I don't even, I'm still learning what's the particular thing God has given St. Peter's to do, which is going to be different than what it's given St. Andrew's to do or Christ church or any of them. Because just as God has put you on this earth for a purpose, God has brought you all together collectively for a purpose. And that's your job, is to figure out what it is you're called to do, figure out what it is that y'all together are called to do. Because nothing is not an option, right? Sometimes I wish it were. But doing nothing is not an option. In some of his writings, Dr. King talks about that first night after the, the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed, he went home to, to his wife and, and as, it, as it's told, he told Coretta, Coretta that, I'm now called to, to do something. I have to move beyond words and ideas and I'm now called to action. Because for Dr. King, doing nothing was not an option. For those stewards, doing nothing was not an option. And for us, doing nothing is not an option. You have folks in your midst who went to Haiti because they were called to go to Haiti right now. Maybe some of you are called to tutor kids in school. I don't know what all y'all do here, but I know y'all do something. And you are called to do something. Because for Dr. King, for Jesus, for St. Peter's, for me, for you, for all of us, doing nothing is not an option. Amen.